My name is Alan Carr. I'm pastor of Calvary Baptist Church in Lenore, North Carolina. Thank you for visiting our webpage and for taking the time to listen to one of our sermons. We hope this sermon, which was preached in our pulpit, will be a blessing to you in your walk with the Lord and help you grow in your understanding of God's Word. God bless you now as you listen to the preaching of the Word of God. Book of Haggai this morning. Back to Haggai. Again, I'll tell you where to find it. It's between Zechariah and Zephaniah, right there in the Old Testament. And uh, if you go to Malachi, keep turning left. It'll be Malachi, Zechariah, Haggai. Can't miss it. Third book from the end in the Old Testament. One of the minor prophets. They're called minor prophets not because their message is minor by any stretch of the imagination, but because they're short. Their message is major. And even though... They were prophesying to the nation of Israel many, many years ago. There's still a message in the minor prophets for us. And the book of Haggai is no exception to that. Last week we dealt with chapter 1. You you should be proud. I covered a whole chapter in one service. That's a miracle in itself, really. It is a miracle. And it is, yeah. There's only two chapters in this book. We're not going to get chapter 2 today. (laughs) Only going to get the first nine verses by the help of the Lord. Last week we talked about apathy, complacency, getting satisfied. That's what had happened in the nation of Israel. They had become apathetic about the things of God. They were more focused on their own needs and their own desires than they were the work of God. God sends Haggai to address that, and he does. And the people heed the message. It's a miracle. It's a miracle. The preacher preached, people did what God said to do, and that's a wonderful thing. There's a movement in Baptist churches now, it's it's very big in some circles, where the preacher refers to himself as the man of God, and he expects that because he is the quote-unquote man of God, the people have to do what he says. And he dominates the church, and everybody has to march to his tune. That's not biblical, okay? You don't have to do what I say. Nobody here has to live by my dictates. I'm not the man of God. I'm the pastor. That's who I am. My job is to try to shepherd you, help you, be a blessing to you when you have needs, minister to you, and to preach the Word of God to you. You ought to obey the word because it's the word of God, not because the preacher said it. It's what thus saith the Lord that matters, not what thus saith the preacher. Okay? Uh, We should never be guilty of elevating a person. Let's elevate a Savior. Let's elevate our Lord and let him receive the glory and not give the glory to a man ever. So the people here heard the word of God and they obeyed the word of God. And God is honored by that. But, as this passage will show us, things didn't turn out quite as they expected. Haggai chapter 2, if you found the passage, we'll stand together. If you're able, we'll read the first nine verses of Haggai chapter number 2. Haggai chapter 2, verse number 1. In the seventh month, In the one and twentieth day of the month, that's October the 17th, uh, 520 B.C., if you're interested, came the word of the Lord by the prophet Haggai, saying, Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, 
governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Josedek, the high priest, and to the residue of the people, saying, Who is left among you that saw this house in her first glory? Talking about Solomon's temple. It's been gone for 66 years, torn down by the, by the Babylonians. And how do you see it now? Is it not in your eyes in comparison of it as nothing? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, saith the Lord, and be strong, O Joshua, son of Josedek, the high priest, and be strong, all ye people of the land, saith the Lord, and work. For I am with you, saith the Lord of hosts. According to the word that I covenanted with you when ye came out of Egypt, so my spirit remaineth among you, fear ye not. For thus saith the Lord of hosts, yet once it is a little while, and I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations, and the desire of all nations shall come, and I will fill this house with glory, saith the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, saith the Lord of hosts. The glory of this latter house shall be greater than of the former, saith the Lord of hosts. And in this place will I give peace, saith the Lord of hosts. You can be seated. Thank you for standing. <clears throat> Thomas Edison was a much-famed inventor from the 19th century. Many of you know that Thomas Edison was the inventor of the incandescent electric light bulb. Now, inventing the light bulb for Edison was not an easy task. In fact, one day he had completed his 1,000th experiment only to discover another way which would not work. He was trying to find something to serve as a filament in that bulb, and he had a difficult task of that. When he went home that night after trying his 1,000th failed experiment, he shared the news with his wife. She said to him, aren't you pretty discouraged, Tom? Discouraged, he responded, certainly not. He said, I now know a thousand ways that won't work. That's amazing, that kind of attitude. Now, Edison eventually perfected his light bulb, and his invention literally changed the way we see the world. Had he become discouraged because of all of his failures and stopped his work, he would never have succeeded in inventing the light bulb, and as a result, the world would be a much darker place than it is today. Now, you and I know as Christians that Satan has many tools at his disposal. Sometimes he'll use greed to hinder us. Sometimes he'll use anger and malice or even false accusations. At other times, he'll resort to lust or evil desires or the temptation to exact revenge against those who have harmed us. But of all of Satan's tools which he uses against the people of God, none is sharper or more harmful than the tool called discouragement. Because if Satan can cause the people of God to become discouraged in their work for the Lord, he has already defeated us. Now I'm preaching this morning to people who are well acquainted with disappointment and discouragement. There are some here today who feel as though life has cheated you. Others feel overwhelmed by their circumstances. Some people here have been hurt by others or even by members of their own family. Others here feel disappointment because of sickness and because of the trials they're in. There are some who are discouraged and disappointed with the church. And they're struggling to keep doing what they do down at the church house. 
Well, our text says before us, a discouraged and a disappointed people. Now, we discussed the background for all of this last Sunday, but in brief, let me say, after returning from exile in Babylon, the Jews began rebuilding their temple. But almost immediately they were opposed by the Samaritans who did not want the Jews to succeed, and so they stopped their work. And for 16 years, the foundation of God's house sat there, but the temple of God had not been built. And after 16 years, God raises up the prophet Haggai to call the people back to the task at hand. And at at his preaching, they repented and they began their work in September of 520 B.C. Well, barely a month has passed since then. And their initial enthusiasm for the work has waned once again. This time, they're not so much overwhelmed by opposition as they are by the sheer magnitude of the work which lies before them and at the memories of Solomon's great temple and how wonderful it had been. And by comparison, this new temple seems such an embarrassing and a small house for God. And maybe they thought, why rebuild when we'll end up with a shack on the ruins of a glorious temple? What we're building is nowhere near as glorious or wonderful as what we used to have. And in their minds, no doubt, such a small building would only call attention to the past with all of its glories. Well, in this passage, Haggai speaks to the disappointment and discouragement of the people. And he comes to them with a word from the Lord designed to help them overcome their disappointment. Now, we need to hear what Haggai has to say. Because if you are discouraged and disappointed, there is a word from God in this passage for you today. I want to talk to you about overcoming disappointment. And I want to share Haggai's message, and as I do... I want to ask and answer two simple questions. And I want to examine this passage and the questions which Haggai lays before us. And then talk about the answers set forth by God as we consider overcoming disappointment. I don't know about you, but I get disappointed from time to time, don't you? I get discouraged from time to time. And I need to be reminded about what really matters, and that's what Haggai teaches us today. So let's talk about overcoming disappointment for a few minutes this morning. First, I want to ask the question, what causes disappointment? Why do we, why did these Jews get disappointed? Well, let's consider them, and then let's apply the reasons they became disappointed to our own disappointment and discouragement. And talk about the reasons why we wind up that way. And there are several reasons given in this text why these people became disappointed. And most of the reasons for their disappointment centered around the problem of their having bad memories. They were guilty of remembering the negative while forgetting the positive. Now memory can be a blessing or it can be a curse. Right now, my short-term memory is not very good at all. You can ask Joan. I just can't remember anything. We have conversations, at least she says we do, and I believe her because she's never lied to me. And she tells me we've had these conversations and what we said, and I just have to agree with her, but I, I honestly don't remember. Now, some of you guys have the same problem too, don't you? 
But my short-term memory is not what it used to be. But for these people, memory had become a heavy burden which hindered their work for the Lord. And here's the problem. I'm just going to share these little headings with you and talk about them. One of the reasons they were disappointed was they had good memories of the wrong things. In verse number 3, notice what God asked them. God says, Who is left among you that saw this house in her first glory? Now Solomon's temple was destroyed, as I said, by the Babylonians in 586 B.C. And Haggai prophesied in, in 520 B.C. So 66 years have passed. And by the time we come to this text, work has been progressing on the new temple for about a month. And enough had been accomplished so the people could get an idea of the size and shape of the new temple. And there were people still living in Israel, older men, older ladies, who remembered Solomon's temple and all of its glory. Now how do we know that? In Ezra chapter 3, it talks about when they laid the foundation for the new temple. It says in in verse number 13 or 14 of Ezra 3, it says, The young men shouted, but the old men wept. The old men who remembered the first temple in all of its glory, they wept when they saw how pitiful and sad this new temple would be when compared with the old temple. I can imagine these older men watching the younger men work and reminiscing about the old temple. I can imagine them talking about how great it was. I can imagine them recounting the glory of the old days and talking about how sad this new temple looks in comparison. Maybe they said, where's all the silver and where's all the gold? Where's all the grandeur of the old temple? Where?" was the building which was one of the ancient wonders of the world. And as the old men remembered, and as they talked about the old days, it produced discouragement in the hearts of the younger workers. Now those older folk had good memories, but those memories were of something which was gone forever. Solomon's temple was gone, and it would never, ever be back. But they allowed their memories, good memories, of something which was a good thing, but those memories became bad because those memories were were used to discourage a generation who was trying to do something for God. Now we have the same problem today. Whether we want to admit it or not, many remember the glory days of yesteryear. We remember when our pews were full. We remember when our offerings were exceeding the needs of the church. We remember when the choir was overflowing with people who wanted to sing for the glory of God. We remember great revivals and we remember great services and all of those are good memories. But if we allow ourselves to live in the past and ignore what God is doing in the present, we will be disappointed with what we see happening around us. And we will be, be a discouragement to those who are trying to serve the Lord today. Like you, I can remember a time when the church enjoyed better times. I remember a time when the church was growing and people were being saved. And I long to see those days again. But here's something to keep in mind. God has not changed. God's Word has not changed. 
But our culture is changing and is changing fast. The church is being more and more seen as something outdated and irrelevant. And if we want the Lord to use the church today, we don't need to change our message. But we do need to change how we engage our culture. We do. We've got to learn to let go of the past and live in what God is doing today. Now, memory is a wonderful thing if you remember the right things. But for many, memory has become a curse because it traps us in the past and it prevents us from enjoying life in the present. Now, not only did they have this problem of remembering good things in the wrong way, they also had bad memories of the right things. Look at verse 5. God said, according to, this, to the word that I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, so my spirit remaineth among you, fear ye not. Now these Jews remembered the old temple. They remembered all that. They remembered the glamour of it, the glory of it. They remembered the gold and the silver and how lavish and ornate and huge that temple was. But they had forgot something far, far more important. And in verse 5, God reminds them of that which they had forgotten. They had forgotten what God did for their forefathers when He brought them out of Egypt. They had forgotten how, as a, as a bunch of slaves, God, through a series of miracles, brought them out of Egypt and brought them to the Red Sea. And there they stood facing this body of water with the Egyptian army closing in on them from the rear and how Moses stood with his staff and commanded the waters to part. And the waters parted and God led them through on dry ground. And when they got on the other side, God brought the sea back together and overwhelmed and destroyed their enemies. They had forgotten that and God is here to remind them. I have not changed. I was with your fathers then. I am with you now. God said, you don't remember the good things I did in the past and how that translates into me being the same God today. And again, we have that problem. A lot of us look back to the glory days and we remember how it used to be. We remember what God used to do. But I want to say to you, God is the same God He's always been. And He's still working miracles and He's still doing great things. God is still a sovereign God. And in verse 5 where God says, So my spirit remaineth among you, fear ye not. God is saying to them, Abraham is gone and Moses is gone and David is gone and Solomon and his grand temple are gone but I am still here and God is saying I'm still moving among you and God is saying I'm still working. Don't be afraid of your enemies. Don't be afraid of your efforts. Don't be afraid of the smallness of the temple you're building. Pick up your hammers and your chisels and keep working because I'm still here and I'm still God. And the implications for us are clear. God is simply saying, don't look back to the past. Don't worry about who isn't here. Stop focusing on what you used to have. Remember who is here. God is here. And God abides with His people. And God is saying, keep moving forward. 
Don't be afraid to tackle the impossible projects. Don't be intimidated by overwhelming circumstances because God has promised to remain with us forever. His Spirit is the fulfillment of His unbreakable promise and we must keep on keeping on for His Spirit remains with us. So they were guilty of a couple things. Something else they were guilty of. They were guilty of false comparisons. In verse 3, God asked them, you, who remembers the former temple? He said, and how do you see it now? Is it not in your eyes in comparison of it as nothing? Again, the older people who remembered the glory of the first temple, they wept when they saw how small and how, 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 how rude and how plain the new temple was going to be. And in their eyes, this new temple must have represented all the failures of the past. For them, the new temple was a symbol of all they had lost 66 years before. They must have felt the new temple was not worth the effort it would take to rebuild it because it would never be like it used to be. They were guilty of comparing what they had now with what they used to have. And God says that is a false comparison. I wonder how many of these older people who remembered Solomon's temple I wonder how many of them remembered how they rebelled against God while the old temple was still standing. Well, they probably forgot that, didn't they? And that's our problem too. Because we always remember the good old days as being a whole lot better than they were. Huh? We remember the past as being better than it really was so that the present always seems worse than it really is. Because when we look at what we have today, and what, what folk used to have back then in the church, we say, well, we don't have what they used to have, but I, I beg to differ with you. Such comparisons are foolish because we still have the same God, we still have the same Christ, we still have the same Word, we still have the same Spirit, God still has the same power, and God is still working today. You know, when, when Simon Peter went out fishing one night in John 21, he and some other disciples, and they caught nothing, then Jesus showed up and He told them where to cast the net, and they caught 153 fish, the Bible said. After that, Jesus prepared the meal. They sat down with him and they ate. And three times, Jesus asked Peter, do you love me? Three times, Peter answered, you know I do. After they got done, Peter looked at Jesus and said, pointing to John, he said, and Lord, what shall this man do? And here's what Jesus said to him in John 21, 22. He said, if I will that he tarry till I come, what is that to thee? He said, follow thou me. Now here's a lesson. God is not obligated to treat us in the same way He treats anyone else. Nor is He required to treat us today like He did yesterday. God is under no obligation, as hard as we try to make it so, God is under no obligation to keep His church functioning like it did in 1950, 1960, 1970, 1980. God is under no obligation to keep us in that little window of blessing we had here in western North Carolina. Like Solomon's temple, listen to what I'm about to say. Those days are gone. 
And they are gone forever. We do not live in 1950. We do not live in 1960. We don't live in 70 or 80 or 90 or 2000 or even 2010. This is 2018. And God, like He was then, is doing a new thing. And we would be wise to stop looking back to the old days and get our eyes on what God is doing today. God is God and we're not. And God is absolutely sovereign and He has the right to do what He pleases. And if you stop and think about it, the sovereignty of God renders all of our comparisons useless and counterproductive. The best thing we could do is stop comparing today with yesterday because it's a waste of time. We don't live then, we live now. We don't work then, we work now. We're not the people living in those days. We're the people living in these days. God has us here. God does not have us then. Is that not true? These folk are discouraged because their temple today is not what they remember the temple being 66 years ago. Well, that temple's gone. Everything in it's gone. Every stone is torn down. All the gold, all the silver, all the furnishings, everything has been hauled off to Babylon. There's nothing left but a pile of ruins. And yes, their new temple may be small in comparison. It may not be as grand and as ornate. It may not have the gold and the silver and all the stuff the old one used to have. But God is going to tell them, I'm going to bless this one more than I ever blessed that one. So you keep working. I'm doing something new Today. And here's the problem. They lived in the past. They belittled the present. And they forgot the future. Their disappointment with the present caused them to live in the past. And because they venerated the past and held it in such high regard, they thought it was better than the present, and thus they looked down on what they had. And because they looked down on what they had, they became discouraged with what they had, and they failed to consider what God might do in the future. And if our focus is always behind us, and we're never seeing what God is doing around us, or what God has planned for us, it will lead to discouragement and spiritual disappointment which will drain all our energy because we focus on what used to be. And thus, we can't commit to what God wants to do today, and we can't look forward to what God will do tomorrow because we're still living back yonder somewhere. You know? God never calls us to look backward. He calls us to live in the present. Look what Paul said. He said, for to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. I wonder when Paul writes that, you know, Paul's in prison. And Paul is facing a death sentence, and as far as I know, he never got out again. He died in that prison. But Paul said, for to me to live is Christ. 
And I wonder if in that prison Paul ever looked back to the glory days when he's in Ephesus and in Corinth and in these other places preaching the gospel and founding churches and seeing God save souls and watching God work in great meetings. I wonder if he remembered those days. Sure, he remembered them and he had fond memories of them, but he didn't live in those days. Paul lived where he was. For me to live is Christ. That's what he said. Then he said this, I press toward the mark for the high prize of the calling of God in Christ Jesus. Paul said, I'm not moving back there. I'm not trying to get back and recapture all that stuff. He said, I'm trying to live where I'm at, and I'm trying to reach out for what God has for me out there. I go to, uh, I'll just interject this here. Probably shouldn't, but I'm going to. I go to these meetings, these camp meetings. And really, what I see in a lot of them is a desire to recreate something that happened back yonder. They're trying to reproduce the past. Trying to bring the past into the present. And I understand the great moves of God in yesteryear. I understand all the great meetings that have gone by. But we've got to understand God is doing a new thing. And we've got to live where we are. And we've got we to work in our environment. And we've got to take things as God sends them. We can't live in the past. Paul understood a great spiritual truth. When he said these things, he understood the past was gone. The future was coming. But the present was all he had. Our son is trying to make some decisions, some very big decisions for himself and for his family. And this week, Joan gave him one of the greatest pieces of advice I've ever heard. She said this to him. She said, serve God where your feet hit the ground. Man, that's deep, that's profound, and that's true. Serve God where your feet hit the ground. Wherever you are, be there and serve the Lord because if God is really sovereign and if God really directs our paths, then we are where God wants us to be. And if we are where God wants us to be, we can be encouraged where we are and serve God where we are. Live in the present and let the past go and you'll be a more joyful person because of it. Let it go. Good advice. So what are the causes? We've talked about them. Now, what cures disappointment? Because this text not only identifies the cause of Israel's disappointment, but it also points out the cure for their disappointment. And God here gives Israel some specific steps they need to take to move past their disappointment and, and, and live in the present and move into the future God has for them. Here's what here. Let me give them to you real quick. The first one is we must let go of the past. Haggai's message, to the nation of Israel, is let go of your fine memories of Solomon's temple. It's gone. Let it go. God is doing something new. Embrace what God is doing now. Work now. Because if you don't, nothing of value will ever be accomplished and there will be nothing to show for your existence in the future. And the same is true for us. Before we can ever move forward, we've got to release the past and let it go. Now, for some, that'll mean forgiving someone who's hurt them, even though they won't even acknowledge they did you wrong. 
For some, it may mean letting go of a long-held dream which you've had and has held you back. It may mean letting go of some painful memory. It may mean seeking God's help to get past some traumatic event in your past. But whatever it is, you need to seek God's help so you can get over what happened yesterday, live in today, and move into tomorrow for the glory of God. Because until you let it go, you'll never move forward. That's the bottom line. One of the great lessons God wants to impress upon us is that God's always doing a new and different work. Always. You read your Bible, you see it. God worked with Adam in a certain way. He worked with Abraham in a certain way. He worked with Moses in a certain way. You see it with Jacob. You see it with Isaac. You see it all the way through. God is not changing His way of salvation. He's never changed that. It's always by grace through faith. But how God ministers in different time periods and works is always changing. And people have to adapt to what God is doing. Because the thing God has for us in the future is always better than what uh, God has for us now or even what He had for us in the past. God's always doing something big. And those who walk with Him walk into that future and enjoy God's best with less disappointment. And they do it for the glory of God. Now, not only must we let go of the past, we've got to learn to look up to God. Now, I don't know if you notice this or not, but as we read these nine verses, six times in nine verses, God has given a name here. And He's called the Lord of hosts. The Lord of hosts refers to He who is sovereign over all the powers of heaven and earth. It's a military name for God. It's a very strong name for God. It identifies Him as one who is greater than all the forces of earth and heaven combined. No one can stand before the Lord of hosts. No one can defeat His purposes. And when God goes out to battle on your behalf as the Lord of hosts, you're going to win because He's never lost a battle. When David walked into the valley of Elah to face the giant Goliath, he came to him, he said, in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, and he said to Goliath, whom you have defied. He said, I'm here in the name of the sovereign God of heaven and in earth. And then he said, the battle is the Lord's. He slung his stone and killed the giant. God gave him the victory. And God is telling these Jews, your task is big and it's hard and it's difficult. But if I'm bigger than the task, then the task becomes small enough for you to handle. Because in David's eyes, God was bigger than Goliath, and so Goliath became easy to defeat. The Jews in Haggai 2, they had a small God. And that made the task of rebuilding the temple seem overwhelming. Not that God was small, but in their minds, in their minds, they saw God as a weak, anemic, helpless kind of God. And the same way this is true for us, our view of God affects the way we approach life. Take a look at the God you worship. Is He big enough to handle your problems? 
Is He the Lord of hosts in your life? Do you recognize that He has all power in heaven and in earth? Do you understand that He is able regardless of the circumstance, regardless of the power of the enemy? That's who we serve. Look up to God and let Him, let Him enable you to do the task. Something else will help cure disappointment. Look forward to the future. God only sends His people in one direction. He sends them forward. He never sends us back. He never sends us sideways. He always sends us forward. And He never allows us to stay in one place too long. Now these Jews had enshrined the past and forgotten about the future God had promised them. And in these verses, God makes some powerful promises. And I'll just share a couple. In verse number 6, God says this. He says, For thus saith the Lord of hosts, Yet once in a little while, and I will shake the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the dry land. I will shake all nations. God said the day is coming when the world will be shaken by God. This is what's called a compressed prophecy. Because you have a a short-term fulfillment and you have a long-term fulfillment. In the short-term fulfillment, the Persians who allowed the Jews to go back and rebuild their temple, they were soon uh, overtaken and conquered by the Greeks. So there was upheaval in the world in that time. But looking out to the future, there's talking about, Haggai's talking about a day when God will shake this world with an earthquake more powerful than any man has ever seen. And when God shakes the earth in that day, everything man-made will be destroyed. All the stuff we hold on to, our houses and our cars and our wardrobes and our buildings and our money, if you can feel it, if you can see it, if you can touch it, if you can smell it, it will all disappear. And what will be left? Only the eternal things, the things of God, the Word of God, the things of the Spirit, your own soul. That's all that will be left. And Haggai is saying, let go of the past. Don't hold too tightly to the present because God's going to blow all this apart. God's saying, don't pin your hopes on the world system. It's going down for good. It can't last. It's going to crumble and fall the whole world and everything in it is going away. And if you live your life for this world, in that day everything you live for will be nothing but dust. God is just reminding us that the things we claim to possess are really ours for only a short time. And God is giving us an unshakable kingdom. It's ours. It's guaranteed. That's in our future. And we've got to press toward that future. In verse 7, God says, The desire of all nations shall come. Again, that's one of these compressed prophecies. In the short term, God was going to fill that house with His glory And God was going to, that desire of the nation refers to what Ezra talked about, how some of the surrounding nations gave and contributed, and the people gave, and the gold and the silver, which the Bible says there is the Lord's in verse 8. All of that came in, and God provided the resources for building that temple. But there's also a further down the road fulfillment of this. One day, listen, one day a little baby was brought into that temple, Huh? An offering was made for him. He came back when he was 12, and he questioned the doctors and the lawyers. 
Then when he was 30, I'm sure he made other trips. We don't have a record of it. But when he became a man, he walked in that temple precinct and he was there and he ministered and he preached there and he taught there. And the desire of all nations, the glory of God, visited the temple. You say it wasn't the same one. Oh, Herod took this little temple, this little meager temple, and he expanded it and he rebuilt it. But it was this very temple. God said the desire of all nations would come. And sure enough, he did. And because He did, verse 9 says, the glory of this house will be greater than the former. And when the glory of God walked into that temple, I'm telling you, God fulfilled that promise. Don't miss the application. These folk who were working on this temple were discouraged. They were discouraged because what they were building was not as great as what they had. God says to them, Don't worry about what you're doing. Don't don't worry about how bad it looks to you. He said, just be faithful because you never know when one thing you say will impact the world for the glory of God. You never know how many lives you'll touch by your faithful service. Just be faithful right now because people are watching. People are listening and you are making a difference. You're at the men's breakfast yesterday. You heard the message. And I heard my son preach again. And as I listened to him preach, I thought, what a powerful sermon. But I also thought, what an anointed preacher. And I was envious of the way God has gifted him. Because he has a power over words that amazes me. And he's got a good memory too. I used to have that. It's gone now. I'm more dependent on my notes than I've ever been in my life. But I thought he's impacting the world. And it may seem small to some, but God is broadening that ministry. And I say praise God for that. Because he's faithful where he is, God is using him. You go to your Sunday school class and you think those kids aren't getting anything, but they are. They are. You go to that youth class on Sunday night and you wonder if there's any benefit to come out of that. Just keep plugging. You don't know what God is doing. If you walk into a pulpit, you preach week after week after week and sometimes you see nothing happen. And it's easy to become disappointed and discouraged. But you've got to remember God is doing something and you never know what God is up to. And so the final step for them and for us is we've got to get up and get to work. God knows what He wants and God knows why He has us here. And God just says, get up and do the work I've called you to do. In verse 4, He tells them, be strong. Pick up your hammers and go to work. And they did. And sometimes the best therapy for discouragement and disappointment is just getting out of the seat of despair and tackling the job in front of you. Ask God to give you the strength just to take the next step. That's what it's about. You have to worry about going three more days or three more weeks or three more months or three more years. Just ask God to help you take the next step. And in the taking of the next step, He'll give you the strength to take the next one. And a lot of folk get discouraged because they say, I can't climb this steep mountain that's right in front of me. Just remember this, you don't have to climb the mountain. 
All you got to do is take the next step. One at a time. Take the next step. God takes care of the rest. Now, we all get discouraged. We all get discouraged, right? We all get disappointed. But our discouragement and disappointment is not necessarily a sin. It becomes a sin when we allow it to take us away from the work of God. When we allow it to stop us, it becomes a sin to us. Now, I'm speaking to people today who are disappointed. And you wonder why God has allowed certain things to happen in your life. Perhaps you've been through a series of events which have shaken you on a deep level. Whatever you do, do not turn away from God. Do not allow your disappointment to stop you. How will things ever get better? If you give in to despair and reject the only source of hope you have, let God help you. Talk to Him about it. And ask for strength to take the next step. Others here lost. You need to understand this message is for you too. Your disappointment in life may be God's appointment to bring you to the cross. And God tells us in verse 5, My Spirit remains among you. And God is still calling people to be saved. And if He's nudging you in that direction, you ought to come to Christ today and give your heart to Him. Because if you feel hopeless, I say, congratulations. Because God specializes in saving the hopeless. Run to the cross and get to Him and He will save you. Ladies and gentlemen, I think many of us can identify with these workers in Israel. Sometimes the task feels overwhelming. Sometimes our efforts seem so weak and so small. And sometimes we just look for a place to pull over and unhook and lay the load down and let somebody else deal with it for a while. The problem is, God didn't call someone else to deal with it. God called me to deal with my life. He called you to deal with yours. My job is to stay faithful, serve God where my feet hit the ground, not live in yesterday, Not long for what we had then. Accept what we have now and look forward to what God is bringing to us in the future. And all the way through it, stay faithful. Stay faithful. One step at a time. I could tell you, give you illustrations of this out of my own life, but you've got enough in yours to do you for a lifetime. You know what it is to be discouraged. You know what it is to be disappointed. You know what it is to even question God and wonder why God is doing what He's doing. Why has He allowed this? Why has there been such a change? Why has God brought this to me? Why did God allow them to go into captivity? They sinned. And God used that chastisement to discipline them. Then He brought them back and put them to work. But they were so hung up in yesterday... They couldn't even serve God today. Memory can be a blessing or memory can be a curse. 
depending upon whether you rejoice in what God did and realize God's still working today and He's going to keep working in the future. Or, that's a blessing. Or if you say, why don't we have what we had then? It's not as good today as it used to be. It'll never be the same again. And you're always looking back, trying to walk forward, and all you're doing is stumbling. It's time to let go. It's time to accept the now. And it's time to serve God where we are. That's the message from Haggai. Don't be disappointed. Remember God is sovereign. And He has this thing well in hand. Your job, one step at a time. That's all there is to it. And that, my friends, is the message. But unlike Edison, it only took him a thousand tries to figure out the light bulb. I take many thousands of steps every day, and so do you. Some of them are right steps, some of them are wrong steps. I need to figure out how to serve God where I am and be thankful for what I have and anticipate what God is doing. Rejoice over what I've seen, but not let that control me now because today is today. The only day I got. Somebody said yesterday is a canceled check, right? Tomorrow is a promissory note. You may never be able to cash it, but today's cash in hand. Spend it wisely. It's all you got today. So we need to serve God today, or we can refuse to. I choose to serve Him. How about you? You have been listening to a sermon from Calvary Baptist Church. Thank you for taking the time to visit our webpage today and to listen to our sermon. Please check back often for new content. We'd love to have you visit with us at Calvary Baptist Church. The church is located at 1369 Blowing Rock Boulevard Northwest in Lenore, North Carolina. Our Sunday morning worship begins at 11 a.m., Sunday evening at 6 p.m., and Wednesday night at 7 p.m., and you would be welcome at any of our services. Thanks again for listening, and may the Lord bless you is our prayer.